Matthew 9, as we continue in our verse-by-verse exposition. Um, this morning we did uh, verse 1 through 8 in depth, so we won't belabor that much today, but uh, we will continue the rest. There's a lot of things in this chapter. The miracles are presented in uh, groups of threes, as you know, in chapter 8 and 9. We have looked at five of them, and uh, we will begin with the six. And here in chapter 9, verse 1 through 8, you have the healing of the paralytic. And um, again, the backdrop, Jesus has expounded the Sermon on the Mount. He is demonstrating not only his authority regarding the Word of God, but now the power to uh, manifest uh, the kingdom of God upon earth. The kingdom of God's in the midst of you. Um, the favorite phrase of him is the kingdom of heaven, um, that which God is here to establish. And of course, um, it will be established as he returns in the second coming. It will have the thousand-year reign and then the eternal heavens. But here in chapter 9, um, verse 1 on down, he says, So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. And then, behold, um, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus um, saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And so, even though we're seeing the miracles of God in terms of um, illnesses and disease and stuff like that, the focus now is placed upon the, the sins. He's uh, crossed over the Sea of Galilee. He has just delivered the demoniac. He's been rejected. They were more interested in material gain than in the uh, welfare of this demon-possessed person, as well as, you know, the Gospels give us two demon-possessed guys. Here, Matthew focused on one. But um, they were Jews living like Gentiles, and... Um, they were raising pigs, and pigs were unclean. As you know, that would be against the law. The uh, tribe of Gad had settled that area in the Decapolis, the ten cities, that's where it's at. And um, Jesus now is returning to his own city, as was stated in chapter 4, verse 13, and chapter 8, verse 5. Capernaum, uh, the city of Nahum, the village of Nahum, in the Hebrew, whether it was the prophet or not, we're not sure. Um, but here again, in the Greek, one word, city of comfort, because that's what uh, the word means. And it's located on the north side, northwesterly side of the Sea of Galilee. Some of you have been to Israel with us, and we go from Tiberias over to Capernaum. Um, we sail over there, and we go to the museum where they found that boat, and we'll do that also in May. And uh, there, the headwaters of the Jordan comes in, uh, the tributary right there, uh, not far from it. And uh, Capernaum is the city of Jesus. He um, uh, lived in Nazareth, but uh, he made his headquarters here. It's a very important city, as we see, because um, as this paralytic is presented to him to be healed, Capernaum is a very important uh, road. You have uh, from Damascus on down to Egypt. You have commerce. You have trade. You have everything. So you're also going to have the connection with customs and tax collection, uh, as governments always do. They don't miss any opportunity to do that. And um, Matthew is going to uh, be sitting there, and we're going to get to him as Jesus calls him into ministry. And so here, um, the man appears all of a sudden, behold, and um, the uh, other synoptic gospel, Mark chapter 2 and uh, Luke 5, gives us more supplementary material that we looked at more in depth this morning. And um, all of them declare here now that as this man is lowered down, he is brought by four men, four friends. And they are bringing him to be healed. 
And yet here, even in, in verse 2, um, he's lying there. Uh, he's a paralytic. His, uh, his uh, physical condition, he cannot stand. He cannot walk. He's being brought with a kind of makeshift stretcher, a pellet. And um, they, they believe and they bring him to be healed because Jesus has been healing many. His um, reputation is going all over the place. And here again, the paralytic, um, rather than receiving the healing immediately, Jesus proclaims that his sins are forgiven. And I'm sure that uh, his friends were kind of disappointed um, that the fact that he wasn't healed right away. But yet Jesus shows the importance of the, uh, uh, the need of taking care of the most important thing, and that's sin. Sin is an obstacle to our relationship to God. Sin must be uh, dealt with by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And no one can forgive sin except Jesus Christ. Uh, people can try to do all kinds of gymnastics around their sin, call it a mistake, call it whatever they want. But sin kills. The wages of sin is death. Sin is against God primarily and then with or someone else. But ultimately, it's against God. When David sinned with Bathsheba and against Uriah, killing him in Psalm 51, he says, against you and only you have I sinned. So sin is always first against God, then with others or against others. And God here, through the person of Jesus Christ and he being God himself in human form, he forgives sins. Now this is going to rub the scribes the wrong way. As here in verse 3, he says, And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. And so they didn't even, before he even got the words out, they were already in an uproar. Because in the syntax of the Greek, it's very clear that in the middle voice it speaks and it says that Jesus himself was forgiving his sins and they were forgiven exactly when he was saying it, meaning he was saying, I am God. There was no mistake of what they understood. They knew exactly, even by the response in Mark and in Luke, it says only God can forgive sin alone. Well, that's exactly what was going on. But in their mind and in their heart, there was no room for Jesus to be God, the Messiah. They had their own ideas about the Messiah. They were looking for a conquering Messiah, not a suffering Messiah that was, come, was sent first. And so they had their ideas not according to Scripture. And so here, they, it's a term of, uh, it's a derogatory term. The man, this man, blasphemes. He's speaking reproachfully about God and the things of God because he's making himself to be God. Now, there's a man that's coming called the Antichrist, and he's going to declare he's God, and he's going to command fire to come down from heaven, and people aren't going to mind that at all. That's during the Great Tribulation. But yet God himself comes down and they get upset because he says he's God. Interesting. The heart of man. Very, very hostile towards God. In verse um, 4, this consternation moves more. He says, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you uh, think evil in your hearts? Notice it's not in their brains. It's in the heart. The heart of man is deceitfully wicked, desperately wicked. Jeremiah seventeen nine. Jesus says, from the heart that proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, adultery. Um, guard your hearts. Out of it are the issues of life, Proverbs 4.23 says. And it's always the heart. With so many people think, well, you know, I'm too smart. It's just my brain. No, it's not your brain. You're not that smart. It's always the heart. Uh, the heart's the problem, you know. 
we, uh, we exalt ourselves over others. We can't let go of things. We want to get revenge. We want this with that. And it's the problem is that we love ourselves more than we love others. We'll love others when it's convenient, and then when it's over, it's over. And yet God has showed us his love for us, that he being holy, perfect, sinless, came and died in our place, that we might live abundantly through him, by grace and mercy, not because we deserve it at all. And so here, um, in verse 5, Jesus says, For which is easier to say to you, your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise and walk. So he goes from the lesser to the greater. Of course, from the human perspective, the more difficult is to say, get up and walk. The easier is to say your sins are forgiven because no tangible evidence has to be provided for. From the human perspective, that's the way it's looking at. But from the heavenly perspective, the more difficult is to forgive sin. If I got to choose the two, because someone has to die to atone for that sin. And all men and women are sinners. And if they die, they're just martyrs. But they're not saviors. So God had to come down. The answer to Isaiah's prayer, Lord, rent the heavens and come down. He came down and he became man and he died for our sins. He's a propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, but the whole world. First John 2, 2 says, the Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world. John 1, 29. He alone. Buddha has not died for us. Allah has not died for us. Krishna hasn't died for us. Daffy Duck or... Porky the pig or anybody else. Only one person, Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's no salvation other than in the name of Jesus Christ. For Acts 4.12 tells us. And so here in, in verse 6, he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Two imperatives. Take up and go. One's an heiress, a one-time event, get up. To, to, to get up and then to go continuous. He will seal completely. Now, in spite of the miracle, the scribes were still in an uproar. People always say, well, if we can do miracles, people can be saved. Not really. People aren't saved by miracles. They're saved by faith. They're saved by hearing that Jesus is the Lamb of God and believing in that. That's how you're saved. You're not saved by a miracle. Miracles never saved anybody else because people say, well, let me see another one. If that was really a miracle, let me see another one. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith takes me back to God's revelation, what God has promised. He says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. And the evidence of that is that your heart is transformed and your life is different than it was before by the power of God, by the divine nature, and by His grace. Night and day, completely. And so, in verse 6, he says, but they, you may, I'm sorry, verse 7. And he arose and departed to his house. The evidence. Everybody saw it. And therefore now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and they glorified God who had given such power to men. God gets the glory. Let your uh, good works be seen of men that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. It's said in Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 there. And so whatever comes from your life, whatever God allows to um, come through you as you depend upon Him, it is simply for God's glory, not for our own. And we have to remember that, that everything that God wants to do, He wants us to look to Him and to point to him so that people don't get their eyes on us.
because none of us are perfect and nobody uh, has it all together. And it's just by the grace of God. And so throughout the scriptures, always pointing to the Lord and no one else. When you get to verse 9, down to 13, we have the call of Matthew um, to be a disciple. You have the uh, parallel passages in uh, Mark 2, 13 through 17 and Luke 5, 27 through 32. Um, verse 9 and 10, the call of Matthew was to abandon his old profession here. Um, 9 and 10, he says, And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And so Matthew was working. And um, Matthew means gift of God. Levi. Another name. He's Jewish, and therefore, he is sitting here at Capernaum, a very wealthy uh, um, fishing hole for taxes. You have these commerce coming in, and they take the taxes, for, depending on the material that's brought in, the products, the size of the car, the number of wheels, the axle, how many bridges they're going to have to cross, and it's just lucrative, you know what I mean? Um, as I said this morning, I don't know if you got your new registration in your car, but they've doubled our registration once again. Um, politicians are great on, um, on robbing people. Uh, just the way it is. They run out of money, they spend the way they want, and all they do is they just put new taxes. Um, no big deal. Um, nothing has changed. Um, now, Matthew is seen as a traitor. Because he is Jewish and he's working for the Roman government and they would bid for that job and the one who had the best bid would get the job and of course with that bid would be that they would turn a portion over to Rome, they would keep the rest and because of that some of them extorted more money for themselves and they just oppressed and abused people and uh, there was no real control over it. And being a Roman and doing that, a Gentile, that's one thing. But for a Jew to do that to the, his own people who are under subjugation of Rome, he was considered uh, a traitor. Now, you have a zealot as one of the 12 apostles. And the zealots vowed to kill any enemy against the state of Israel. And yet they both are disciples of Jesus Christ, apostles. It's an amazing thing. When you come to the Lord, really all of our differences are irrelevant. The common denominator is that now we're in the Lord and we're both brothers and sisters and your race, your color, your background, what's happened in the past is irrelevant. So you never allow people or politicians or anybody else to divide you as Christians. Your unity is in Christ Jesus completely, all together. And uh, that's the grace of God. And so here in... Um, Verse 10, Matthew throws um, a party. Um, he is giving faithful witness to his salvation here as uh, he is called to a discipleship with Jesus Christ. Luke tells us that this was the house of Matthew called Levi. And he gave this feast in uh, honor of Jesus. And uh, he has found the um, answers to life. He's come to understand the forgiveness of his sins, and he wants to share this with all his tax friends. 
Luke 5.29 tells us. Um, and yet they came down and sat with Jesus and his disciples. Notice Jesus didn't just go there and, and, and mingle with them to an extent. But as Matthew is throwing this party, as they're coming in, they're coming and sitting by Jesus and the disciples. Um, and they were not repulsed by Jesus. The only people who felt uncomfortable around Jesus were religious people. Not normal people who were sinners. Um, they, they gathered around him. Jesus' disciples were not um, uh, partaking of their sin. Sometimes people point this out, especially today in the emerging church. Many of the emerging people uh, in the church, says, you know, they, they go out and they drink and they party and they do everything. And they say, yeah, this way we prove the people we're just like anybody else. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with none of that. No, it is. It is wrong. That's what I used to do as a non-believer. That's when I was dead in trespasses and sins. That we even have to talk about whether a Christian can drink or not shows you the decayed condition of the church today. It's ridiculous. Where there's drinking, there's many other things that go on. And if pastors and their elders are having beer bashes, what in the world's happening in the pew? It's ridiculous. We've got a cultural Christianity that's coming upon us and has been for a while. And you must know the word of God. Now, many of these individuals call you self-righteous. So be it. Bring it on. I just have to make sure that I'm not self-righteous. That I'm setting the standard that is the standard of Scripture, not my own. And the wisdom behind that, very, very important. Now, in verse 11, you get the objection of the Pharisees about Jesus eating with sinners. Uh, Mark 2, 15 and 17 also deals with it. And it says, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see, it's like the guy who says, you know, I don't go out with girls who chew or smoke or, uh, or stuff like that. You know what I mean, you have your own little list, right? And yet that's self-righteous. As a Christian, you and I should be able to mingle with people in the world where we work, where we go. We don't partake of their sin. We're cordial, we're respectful, we're honorable. When we see things are getting funky, we just say, you know what, I got to bow out. I got somewhere to go. I'll see you later on. I don't say you stinking sinner, I can't believe you do that. You know I'm a Christian, how could you? No, you don't do that. Because you understand they're spiritually dead. You used to be there, I used to be there, right? And so we're to be lights, light to draw them to you, not to blind them. Very important. And so here the Pharisees, you know, they're the, the, the religionists. They're the self-righteous ones. And um, they look down on Jesus. You know, here he's mingling. You know, when they went to the, to the marketplace, they would get the rolls and pull them in lest they should touch some sinners and, and get some cooties or something. You know what I mean? And um, uh, in verse 12, he says, and when Jesus heard that, notice they came to his disciples. You know what I mean? They didn't go to Jesus. <laughs> So Jesus hears this um, in verse 12, and he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Double smack. You guys think you're well, but you're really sick and don't know it. These guys are lost and they know it. 
Wow. You go to the doctor and he says, you know, Mr. Smith, you have cancer. And you say, no, I don't. And you walk out. Now, who's the dummy? Not the doctor. When you go to the doctor and he gives you a prognosis about your condition, it's a warning. Now it's up to you what you're going to do about it. If you ignore it, it'll kill you. God warns men about their sin. Sin kills. And if we understand what sin is, and when God allows me to hear the gospel, he gives me the illumination to see the conviction, to have the conviction that I might be able to make that decision. He will not make the decision for me, but I must make that decision of my own free will because God forces no one to be saved. It is I who determine where I am going to spend eternity by who I believe Jesus is whether he's just a man or he's the savior of the world. It'll make a difference in my life, in my eternity. And so Jesus is always here protecting his disciples. The Pharisees didn't see themselves in need of Jesus, of salvation. There are many people that you and I talk to and know, and even some of our relatives, that don't believe that uh, they need to be saved, that there's nothing wrong with You know, we make mistakes and we've made some bad decisions, but what, what are you talking about, sin? We live in an age and a time when uh, a new vocabulary is being shaped and formed and distributed. Everybody has their new lexicon. And so um, people don't, um, and uh, Barack Obama was master at this. Uh, We don't lie anymore. He just misspoke. No, it's a lie. There was one brave man, you remember, when he addressed the Congress for the very first time. He said, you lie. You ever heard about that guy since? Nope. The only courageous man in that room. The only one. Wow. And the Trojan horse to America's public school education that indoctrinates people in this political correctness, in this new vocabulary. That's amoral, neutral gray, subjective. The Bible's objective truth, ladies and gentlemen. The Bible says if we repent, he'll forgive us. If we don't, he will judge us. That's objective truth. It never changes. Very important. So people deceive themselves. They were blind to their own transgressions and sins. The instructions to the Pharisees was to be compassionate towards um, the sinner. Look at uh, verse 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so here, um, he's quoting Habakkuk, or Hosea, I'm sorry, Hosea 6.6. You know the book of Hosea. God calls Hosea to take a wife to himself and she plays a harlot and she has children from other men and she gets so uh, corrupted and so degraded that she can't even be sold on the slave market. And he goes and he buys her for himself and sanctifies her for a set time that she might be his all over again. A picture of what God's going to do to Israel, the nation. Mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy means compassion, pity. And yet, 
so often if we're not careful, we can exalt ourselves because we were not as bad as somebody else or we did not commit certain things as other people. But the fact of the matter is that even if you never committed any great sin, got drunk, got loaded, had sex or whatever, if you die without Jesus Christ, just being born into this world makes you a sinner. You are dead in trespass and sins. It's like going shooting. When you're aiming at the bullseye, what do we always say? Oh, you know, I was just a hair away. It doesn't matter whether you're a hair away from it or a mile. You missed the bullseye. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Leveled. So where's the boasting? There is no boasting. Boasting is foolish. Absolutely foolish. Now these men um, were blind to this. Um, God desires to forgive. God desires to snatch people out of the fire. And that should be our heart for those around us as long as God has us here on earth. In verse 14 through 17, there's a question on fasting now. The cross-reference you have in um, Mark 2, 18 through 22 and Luke 5, 33 through 39. The inquiry came from a group of disciples here in verse 14. He says, Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, the disciples of John here are inquiring, and their question is because the Pharisees fasted on Monday and Thursday. Uh, Luke 18.22 gives us that reference. And John and Andrew were disciples of John at one time. Now they're disciples of Jesus. They used to fast, but now they don't. And so it's a legitimate question. There's nothing wrong with the question. Um, the Lord is here now. There's a transition that's going on from the old covenant to the new covenant. And, and things are changing and they're inquiring. So God never gets bent out of shape um, when you ask him questions. I don't understand this or that you would ask a pastor or any other Christian. Any pastor that gets upset when you ask him certain questions, just go find another church. Um, there's only one stupid question, and that's the one you don't ask. It's simple. And sometimes you may ask questions of the pastor, and the pastor says, you know what, I really don't know. Either because he doesn't know, and he says, I'll find out for you, or he says, you know, the Bible is silent on that, I don't know. Nothing wrong with that. And so again, the standard for objective truth is the Word of God. Now in verse 15, the response of Jesus is given. He says, and Jesus said to them, um, can the friend of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So, here in 15, Jesus gives them the distinction in what's going on. His disciples, um, uh, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's going to be a time later on when they will fast. Right now, it isn't. Jesus was the bridegroom. The disciples are the friends. John the Baptist is the friend of Jesus. And John 3.39 tells us, Jesus indicates when the disciples will fast, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. When Jesus is gone, 
after his resurrection, after he ascends to the right hand of the Father, then there will be a time for fasting. Not right now. And so there's a transition going on. In fact, in 16, he illustrates it for us. And he says, no one puts a piece of garment or an unshrunken uh, cloth um, on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskin break. The wine <clears throat> is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wineskin into new, new wine into new wineskin and both are preserved. And so the illustration to us is kind of weird because we're not familiar with all these things. But if you have a garment that you've been wearing and all of a sudden there's a hole in it, you do not go get a new piece of garment and put it on because next time you wash it, the rest the, the clothes has already been shrunk, but this new patch hasn't been shrunk. So when it's washed for the first time, it'll shrink and tear and make a bigger hole. And the wine skin, when wine was poured into it, it would ferment and the elasticity of that leather or that, that, that skin would be fully uh, uh, stretched out. So if you put new wine, it would burst and both the skin and the wine would be spilled. And he's making a comparison between the old and the new. There's a transition going on. Now, in principle, we can also add that sometimes we can become uh, set in our ways as Christians in what God is doing or maybe in our own traditions or denominations or whatever it may be. And we say, well, you know, we've never done it that way. And as long as it's not contrary to Scripture, if God is directing and guiding that way to reach the world, nothing wrong. You can evangelize through music. You can evangelize through theater. You can evangelize through just one-on-one. -on -one. There's different ways you can evangelize. It doesn't make any difference what. And so we have to make sure that we're not locked in into um, things that, uh, that have worked in the past because God sometimes uses other methods to reach the world. Uh, for a long, long time, concerts were used, and then they weren't that effective, so we dropped them for a while. And then um, we brought them back in, and God started using them again. But if, he, if they aren't effective, we drop them again. No big deal. There's other ways to do it. And so uh, rather than being rigid, um, we, we stay flexible to God. Old oh, Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, Blessed are the flexible, they will not be broken. And so it's good. In verse uh, 17 now, um, he says, nor do they, I'm sorry, verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So here in verse 18 to 26, we have the healing of Jairus' daughter. And we're also going to have at the same time the healing of the woman with the issue of blood as the seventh and the eighth miracle. They're hooked together, but they're two different miracles. The, um, the plead is of a heartbroken father, notice here. The scenario is the, in the backdrop of, of the question of fasting of the disciples while he spoke these things to them. This is when the father comes up and there was a sudden appearance of this man, verse 18 tells us. The attitude is honorable. Behold, a ruler came up and worshipped him. 
Mark tells us his name was Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue that fell at the feet of Jesus Christ, Mark 5.22. His request was in faith, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. He believed that Jesus could raise her. He believed that Jesus could do it. This is always the basis on which we come to God, faith. Believing what he has given to us, what he has promised to us, what is our inheritance. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody will be healed every time. We've seen people be healed. We've seen people die. Sometimes that faith is attributed to that person, as we see in Scripture, other times to uh, like we saw in the beginning there, the four men, that Jesus saw their faith, and he saw the faith of the man to be forgiven of their sins. And sometimes God just heals people sovereignly. Um, he's God. He does as he wills. Mark says he begged Jesus earnestly, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. Mark five twenty three. Once again, uh, you know, as parents, uh, when you have children... Um, you realize how uh, inept you are when your children are sick and you, you just die. And there's nothing you can do for them at times. You entrust them to the Lord. When you have to take them to the hospital, the doctor, whatever it is, or when critical things go on. But you realize as a Christian that God loves your children um, way more than you ever will. And you comfort and you rest in that. You do all that you can. You lift them to the Lord. You anoint them with oil. You pray for them. And if that doesn't work, then you go to the doctor. You don't not go to the doctor. It's foolish. And many times Christians have attempted to do that, quote, quote, because of some bad teaching of positive confession that you don't say things negative and you just confess it that you're healed and you know you're, you say you're healed and your nose is running you're a liar now come on and is there such bad theology that is being taught in the church today 12 years old we are told that she was Luke eight forty two. we're going to see the contrast with this woman that has an issue of blood for 12 years one a young girl the other one a woman of age 12 years, both of them. Verse 19. He says, so Jesus arose and followed him. And so uh, did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came in behind and touched the hem of his garment, the tassels that came from his robe that is um, declared in the Old Testament for the Jews to have. Um, and... Um, for she said in herself, if only I can touch his garment, I shall be made well. So the pursuit of this unclean woman, she has an issue of blood. In other words, her menstrual period is ongoing. She's unclean. According to Levitical law, anywhere she sat on, she is unclean. That's unclean. She is out of a, a social uh, interaction. She is out of religious worship. I mean, this is for 12 years. The compassion of the Lord for this little girl, 12 years old, the, the joy of a father, the, this woman of 12 years. Um, uh, Luke tells us that uh, she suffered at the hand of physicians in Luke 
8.43 and Mark 5.26. It's interesting because Luke was a doctor, and he points this out. Um, you know, doctors are not God, and, and that's why it's called uh, the practice of medicine. They're practicing on you and me, okay? <laughs> they're pretty good at times, but sometimes they're just, they don't know what they're doing. It's just the way it is. It's the reality of it. And the woman came in faith here in um, verse 21. And if she could only touch that hem in Numbers 15, 38 and Deuteronomy 22, 12, this tassel. Um, uh, she came from behind and immediately the flow of blood stopped. Luke eight forty four tells us immediately. Mark affirms her words of faith and that she felt in her body that she had been healed of the affliction in Mark 5.29. She was very aware instantly. Mark says that Jesus knew immediately in himself the power had gone out of him, turned around to the crowd and said, Who touched me? To which the disciples said, Who touched you? Look, you're being thrown by all these people. Mark 5.30 and Luke 8.45. But Jesus can distinguish between a crowd that's just rubbing up against him, bumping him, and someone who touches him by faith. God knows when you come in faith, trusting him, and when you simply want to get things from him. See, you and I can fool each other, but we can't fool God. He knows our heart. He knows everything completely. So the woman, being exposed, feared and trembled, falling before him, telling the truth and reason why she touched him. She gives that reason to Jesus that she was healed immediately. Mark 5.33 and Luke 8.47. Amazing. Twelve years of youth. Twelve years of life of misery. And yet Jesus touches both of them. Completely. There is nothing that the Lord cannot do. There is no need that we have that we cannot come to him for. And we rest in his will. Because it's always whether he wants to or not. But I come in faith trusting him to do that. In verse 22 you get the response of Jesus. Um, and he commends the woman for her faith. In verse 22, he says, But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. And so once again, here he, um, um, Mark 5.34 confirms in Luke 8.48, um, her faith, she came. When you got saved, you came the same way. When I got saved, the same way. When you come to God, when you're sick, you come in the same way. And God uh, will save anybody who calls upon him, but God doesn't always heal everybody because he knows why and why not. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love me. It doesn't mean that he has favorites. It means that he knows what's best for my life. And so we rest in the justice and the faithfulness of God because he's a holy God. There, there's no argument. Once I come to Jesus Christ, he's the Lord. I'm the servant. 
He's the one who saved me, not myself. And so I rest in him. She was made well. Jesus restored her joy. She's back now. She can interact with her family, worship God. After 12 years, 12 years is a long, long time. Verse 23 and 24, you have the situation of the house now of Jairus as he continues the, the, uh, um, the journey. Verse 23 and 24, he says, And when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. These were... Um, professional mourners. Roma limited the number of flutes because they were so noisy. And these uh, professional mourners, they, they, they could really, really wail. Um, Jesus um, told Jairus in Mark 5, 35 and 36 and Luke 8, 49 and 50, he says, don't be afraid, only believe and she will be made well. Because someone had told Jairus before he got there that she was dead already. Once again, trusting in the Lord. What he's going to be doing. Jesus reproved the crowd in verse 24. He says, and he said to them, make room. The girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed completely. And so once again, um, Jesus knew exactly she wasn't fainted. She wasn't just, she was dead. He raised her from the dead. The phrase sleeping is used of the believer when they die, never of an unbeliever. Now, sleeping doesn't mean that when you die physically that you're waiting in some place until God raises you up that's called soul sleep the bible teaches that when you and i die physically as christians our body goes to the grave but our spirit is instantly present before the lord second corinthians 5 1 through 8 when the lord returns for his church the bible tells us that our loved ones and our friends that we were alive today and tomorrow the rapture happens the Lord will descend with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, with all those who have died with Christ, and they will come to the lower atmosphere. We will be harpostled, caught up violently with them. Who's them? With those in the grave, the bodies. The bodies are raised, glorified, and then they're met with that. Our bodies are transformed as we're going up, and then they're joined. But the minute you die, you're instantly present before the Lord. Some people teach soul sleep. The Bible does not teach that. Now, in the Old Testament, they all went to Hades, or Sheol in the Hebrew, uh, Hades in the Greek. And now Jesus taught that in Luke 16, two-fold compartment. Those who died in faith, those apart from faith. And they could not go to heaven until Jesus made the way. So we, when he died on the cross, he descended to the lowest parts and preached to those captives uh, First Peter 3 tells us, and he scooped those up in faith and led them to the third heaven. He told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise was there in the bosom of the Father, the place of comfort. 
when Jesus scooped them up, no demon could stop him. Colossians 2.14 says, and he took them to heaven. Paul says he was caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So where's the third heaven now? Or where's paradise now? In the third heaven. He told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. When they descended, they went to paradise. Jesus scooped it up, took it to heaven. The minute a Christian dies, goes to heaven, the third heaven. The minute a non-believer dies, they go to hell. Hades, the grave. Not for a second opportunity, but to wait for judgment. That's why the Bible pleads with men and women to repent from their sin before it's too late. Luke tells us, uh, 8.55, that her spirit returned and she rose immediately. And so he raised her from the dead. Her parents were astonished, Luke tells us also. And in verse 26, he says, And the report of this went out unto all the land. Jesus was constantly um, being followed. The miracles he did were being talked about over and over and over again. In verse 27 to 31, you have the two blind men healed. This is the ninth miracle that we have. 27 and 28, the request for their healing is given. Um, he says that when Jesus departed from there, the two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. So here they call out by his messianic title, Son of David. He's the lineage of David. We saw that in the genealogy. We went all through that. Um, notice they're crying out, have mercy on us. They're, they don't feel entitled. They're not saying that they deserve to be healed, but they're blind. And yet, as they're crying aloud, is because they have also heard of all these miracles. And someone's telling them, hey, listen, Jesus is coming. Let me tell you, when you're blind, you're not going to shut up. I mean, maybe this was the only time that they had ever had the chance that Jesus was coming by. I don't know. But it's very evident here. Um, and if we have in other passages where people tell the blind men to be quiet, and they, they, they don't. <laughs> not at all. And then when he had come into the house, so the scenario is back in the house in verse 28, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord. Wow. If you don't know Jesus Christ tonight, he tells you, do you believe I can save you? Do you believe I can forgive you of your sin? And if you say yes, and if you call upon him, he'll do exactly, exactly that. Now, as I said, not everybody is healed all the time. In the New Testament, we have Epaphroditus that was not healed. Timothy was not healed. Let me give you a better one. Paul was not healed, yet Paul prayed for people and they got healed. <laughs> God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. Verse 29 to 31, the way Jesus healed the two blind men is given to us. In 29 it says, and then he um, touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, let it be to you. He touches them. Not other times, Jesus spits 
and puts dirt. At the times he does differently. Now, there is no pattern to this. He is sovereign and never does Jesus heal the same person or other people the same way. It's always different. People are always looking for a pattern to see and they can duplicate it and all that. And the thing is that the only thing that is required is faith and going to the Lord and letting God decide what he wants to do. This is the ninth healing here. In 30 and 31, now once Jesus opens their eyes, they cannot keep silent just like all the rest that Jesus touched. It says, but when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all the country. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon-possessed. So it's one right after the other in 32. Now the 34, a mute man, the 10th miracle. I mean, Jesus is just on and on and on, one thing after the other. Now remember, you say, yeah, but he was gone away. I mean, he was a man just like you and I. Jesus slept, Jesus tired, Jesus bled, Jesus died. Jesus had to eat. He had a human body. He's the last Adam. And yet he did all that he did, trusting and calling on the Father and doing what the Lord directed him. He got up and prayed to show us our need every day. Lord, what would you have me to do? Before I even get out of bed, Lord, thank you. And there's to go before me. And I just, Lord, start speaking to me. Before my feet hit that ground, let me put on the armor of God. Let me put on your mind, Lord. Prepare my heart for what you have today. Let me be sensitive. Now, only if you believe that Satan is actively trying to destroy you and obstruct you from the will of God will you do that. Only when you realize the reality of the warfare and that Satan doesn't play games. Then you will be a good soldier, prepared and ready to be used by God. Satan wants to distract you. Satan wants to tell you that it's not that bad. And you don't really have to do this. Remember, he's a liar. He's a liar completely. And so, the mute man, um, we're going to see he's demon-possessed here in um, verse 32. And when the demon was cast out, the mutant spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never seen like this in Israel. Once again, we see that there's an association with the demon possession and the inability to speak. Only when we are demonstrating this in context can we say that the demon possession was the reason for his muteness because when Jesus expels that demon, the man speaks. But it would be wrong for you and I to say every person who is dumb or mute or deaf has a demon. Be real careful of this, okay? Now, there's a lot of junk that goes on in the church every once in a while teaching that Christians can be demon-possessed, okay? It's a lie from hell. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, 1 John 4, 4. Light and darkness cannot be in the same vessel. Now, Satan can oppress you. Satan can depress you if you don't put on the mind of Christ. But Satan can never possess you as a child of God. And there are many Christian ministries, and you know them. They're easy to identify. They're called deliverance ministries. 
And they will lay hands on you as a Christian. And you say, well, he has a demon of lust, the demon of, 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 of smoking, the demon of drinking. No, no, no. That's the, those are the works of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. You know what the solution for that is? Crucify your old man. Don't be blaming Satan. Satan's probably up there with God saying, I didn't do that. He's, just, he's lying. I didn't tell People don't want to deny their flesh. People want an excuse. The, the culture gives you that. It's not my fault. It is your fault. It's, everything is my fault. We have to own up to it. There's no dysfunctionalism in heaven. If you're a child of God, you are able and capable of glorifying Jesus Christ. So am I. And I cannot excuse myself. I cannot justify myself. I must acknowledge and admit my sin and ask forgiveness and move on. And trust the Lord for that. Very, very important. So be careful of this doctrine. It goes around back and forth. So Jesus delivers him and he's able to speak. And the multitudes marvel. Why? Because they're amazed. They have never seen this thing in Israel. Now, there were miracles in the Old Testament at times, but they're not in the way and in the amount that is going on right now with the Messiah. Uh, Jesus, everywhere he goes, he heals everybody. Everybody gets taken care of. In 34, we give the explanation uh, or um, of the religious rulers. Um, 34 uh, says, but the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the ruler of demons. <laughs> Great. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And then Jesus went about all the cities of the village. This is a summary statement. Teaching in their synagogues. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And healing every sickness and every disease among the people. We also have this in chapter 4. Um, uh, verse 23 I believe. Um, the summary statement. And uh, here again, the threefold ministry, uh, teaching, uh, preaching, and, and healing. And we, um, we evangelize, we preach, and we teach the body. And we, on uh, the first Thursday of the month, give an opportunity for God as we worship and wait upon and we partake communion, that God would, we anoint people and we pray for them, that God would sovereignly touch people. Very important, the threefold ministry of Jesus. In verse 36 to 38, the perspective of God regarding lost humanity. Um, um, this is really a better division uh, for the chapter um, from here on down. Um, 35 to 1042 is really the second discourse uh, and would be a better division here. The first discourse was the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 1 to 729. But here in 36... He says, but when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into the harvest. We don't have time to expound this tonight. We'll pick it up. It really goes with the next chapter. But he sees lost humanity, having no shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are, are, are vulnerable to the wolves. They, they, the sheep are, listen, God didn't call us sheep because we're smart. 
a, a, a sheep will look and the flock and they'll be okay. But if he turns around and, and forgets the sheep are over here, he starts freaking out. They can't defend themselves. They don't have teeth, claws. They're, they're vulnerable and they're smelly. So think about it when God calls us his sheep, okay? Uh, the harvest is, is ready, plenty, but the labors are few. Pray that the Lord send labors. In chapter 10, he's going to send the disciples out. Pray and then go. <laughs> Very important. There are many people in the same condition you and I were before we got saved. Lost, dead, and trespassed in sins. He wants to use you to reach them. It begins with prayer. Who shall I send? Isaiah says, send me, Lord. Send me. And he takes a coal off the altar of the angel and he touches his lips and prepares him and sends him. Wow. Father, we thank you for your grace and your love. We pray, Lord, you would deal with our hearts and we thank you for your word and, Lord, that in all things we would honor you. We thank you for just saving us, Lord, and we pray for everyone here tonight. If there's anyone who doesn't know you or over the radio, the Lord, you would just deal with their heart that they would call on your name to be saved. If you're out there and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is your prayer of salvation. By grace through faith, he's going to save you if you call on his name. Father, I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with the Holy Spirit. I accept your Son as my Lord and Savior. 